Hello and welcome to a new episode of Interpreting India. From geopolitical complexities to economic uncertainties, India faces critical challenges in its quest for a more prominent role on the world stage. This season we at Carnegie India continue to bring voices from India and around the world to examine the role of technology, the economy and international security in shaping India's future. One of the guiding norms that has helped the internet develop over the last few decades is the norm of online free speech. and this is a norm that is protected in many countries by exempting online platforms and intermediaries from liability for the content that they allow to be published for example in india section 79 of the it act of 2000 protects intermediaries from such liability however over the last few years this exemption given to online platforms has been questioned by many people the growth and proliferation of social media platforms the problems related to disinformation incitement of violence through these platforms and censorship of free speech in some cases has led to calls for greater regulation of the practices of platforms such as facebook whatsapp twitter reddit and others some legislation to this effect has been floated in the us india's proposed digital india act could potentially revise section 79 and the european union has already enacted the digital services act to implement a regulatory framework to oversee how social media platforms moderate speech these developments potentially alter a basic component of the current structure of the internet and could have far reaching effects on the digital economy and also on free speech to discuss these issues i have professor anupam chander with me today professor chander is scott k ginsberg professor of law and technology at georgetown university law center the author of the electronic silk road He is an expert on the global regulation of new technologies. He has been a visiting law professor at Yale, the University of Chicago, Stanford, Cornell, and Tsinghua. He previously served as the director of the California International Law Center at Martin Luther King Jr. Professor of Law at UC Davis. Professor Chander has written extensively on the issues that we are trying to discuss today. Anupam, welcome to Interpreting India. Thank you, Anirudh. It's an honor to be here. Anupam, let's talk a little bit to begin with about the benefits of the way online speech is regulated today, and the the protections that are given to intermediaries, online platforms, and how that has actually shaped the internet. So, if you could give us a brief background before we get into the weeds, that would be great. Sure. One of the critical questions is where liability will be placed. When something uh, is said online, um, is the provider of the online service themselves going to be held liable for the speech of others? Um, now, in the United States, early on, uh, with the Communications Decency Act, uh, as part of the Telecommunic- Telecommunications Act of 1996, you had an early move to exempt. online service providers from liability um, for civil torts essentially outside intellectual property law uh, and so that statute has been a kind of architectural feature of the internet and has shaped the internet into what it's become today um, and essentially it's worked as as follows um, it's made possible the kind of freemium model and also the kind of web 2.0 model um what is that it's basically to say we will provide you these services for free because the costs of providing you those services are just the tiny marginal cost of an additional user to us um which we can monetize by advertising and so uh, and and we don't face the exposure of liability um and the costs of liability of course that might arise if we're held liable for the inevitable wrongs that some users will will y- use the service for uh, if you give people a kind of blank slate uh, a tool um they especially for speech inevitably people will violate the law people will do something that harms others online uh and so what this uh action in 1996 did 
was it kind of freed up uh, companies to act as hosts and transmitters of speech of others. Uh, and it kind of supercharged um, the, the, the internet as a communications medium. Um, it wasn't a surprise that this, this was an, a rule that com- came out of the United States, which has a, a longstanding and vigorous commitment to free expression. Um, now, that commitment is perhaps stronger in the United States than it is in many jurisdictions around the world. And so other jurisdictions have made different calculations with how much speech should be permissible online. Um, ours is very much a kind of free marketplace of ideas, uh, model, uh, people, uh, there's a tumult of activity online and the truth will out in that process. That's at least the hope. And so we've seen struggles over that, certainly. Um, and many people would say that the Internet has supercharged uh, 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 false speech or hate speech as well as other speech. Uh, and so there's been uh, certainly a, a significant price for this kind of acceptance of freedom. Um, so Section 230 uh, is a critical law in the United States. We have critics of that law um, in the United States. Um, in the uh, last presidential election uh, in the year 2000, both principal candidates, uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden, um, uh, said that they wanted to repeal Section 230. Uh, but for opposite reasons, <laughs> which so uh, uh, so uh, Joe Biden said that it allowed too much speech, um, and uh, uh, Donald Trump said that it was uh, basically being abused by internet platforms, uh, and they were in fact censoring more than they should. It allowed too little speech. Uh, and so um, with that um, kind of totally contradictory worldview of what the problem with Section 230 was, it was, of course, very hard for Congress to find any kind of reform that could pass, uh, that could uh, obtain sufficient majorities in Congress to pass uh, into legislation. So that's the impasse in the United States, uh, a kind of uh, two wildly contradictory worldviews as to the wrongs of Section 230 and where intermediary liability should go. Should it be increased to uh, when speech occurs that's harmful? Should it be um, increased when the intermediary, the online intermediary, censors the speech of others trying to prevent what they believe is an online harm. Um, so, so you've got a very um, uh, uh, contradictory, as I've said uh, multiple times, worldviews on, on this question uh, that remain uh, and that have created the uh, loggerheads that, which we find ourselves in the United States. Um, and I think these same kinds of uh, controversies exist in many jurisdictions around the world as they're rethinking how to regulate the internet. Yeah, no, thanks for that excellent uh, set of opening uh, remarks. I think it leads me to two questions in slightly divergent ways, but both very uh, uh, fascinating ones. One is that when you talk about the Section 230 of the CDA and similar Section 79 in the IT Act in India. When these were enacted, the structure of the internet was very different. We didn't have these uh, behemoths of social media platforms that have such a huge number of users who are um, essentially gatekeepers of information, right? So the kind of dominance or the kind of power that they hold in the market to regulate speech on their networks has a different kind of consequence that was probably envisaged 25 years ago, 30 years ago. So 
one line of questions or discussion is even if section 230 does work to the overall benefit of the internet is it time to revisit it in in keeping with the fact that the dynamics of the market have changed completely so it's a great question um and i want to say that even in the late 1990s um the early internet um did have companies that were very significant um you had you know important players like AOL and uh Yahoo uh which were coming into you know which were prominent by this time uh Yahoo the kind of first big uh massive social uh search engine and uh and of course AOL providing internet connectivity to many Americans America online providing many uh, you know uh, so really uh, very significant power um and even today the uh host of online speech intermediaries is actually bigger than just the gafam uh that uh, that people uh, you know, often mention um we finally heard from uh, the congress finally called up the ceo of discord this last uh, few days to appear before uh in uh, before them in one of these hearings and there are a number of other very significant players that we often forget uh in this context even reddit is a very important online intermediary um and of course even wikipedia is a very important online intermediary um and wikipedia has actually been uh, had enough users in the european union that it's it's one of these vlops uh very large online platforms so there there are a very there is a significant number of large players but there's no question so i just want to complicate the question a little bit but overall agree with the with the, the the thrust of the question which is the structure of the market has indeed changed uh, and some players are have incredible influence over online speech um and and some people have said that should cause a revision to these speech intermediary rules and so in the digital services act you have some special responsibilities particularly of transparency uh for these very large online platforms so what the european union did was basically say if you have um 10% of the size of our population uh you know then you are going to be um in if you cover that if you have that many users within Europe then you have some special responsibilities and i i can understand that uh, approach which is hey these are very very large entities we want to have greater visibility into how they are acting uh, and so this is a i think an important question what they haven't said is that the intermediary liability rules should be significantly modified for these companies because again here's the here's the feature of this uh, and i want to talk about this through the lens if i can tell you about another case in the united states the which was the case of gonzales uh the google this last year um so if i could if i could uh steer us to that direction it will exemplify the issue uh, of very large tech platforms so in two cases gonzales and in a sister case called tomne um google twitter and meta uh, or facebook were accused of basically abetting terrorism across the world so uh essentially terrorism occurred and without actually connecting the dots between google or twitter or facebook to the terrorism to the particular terrorist act that occurred 
the plaintiffs in these cases. And these are awful, awful cases in the sense of horrible uh, facts because of the terrorist uh, incidents that that uh, uh, they that uh, they followed from. Those cases involved um, the victims of terrorism saying Google, Twitter, and Facebook essentially were the reason my uh, my family member died or the reason I was injured, etc. Um, and so without uh, any particular uh, post or um, connection between between any uh, act of Google, any particular act of Google, and the ultimate uh, horrific uh, terror. And the Supreme Court was asked, hey, look, maybe Section 230 should be essentially reinterpreted in a way that it doesn't cover the algorithmic amplification questions embedded in the circulation information. online by Google, Facebook, and Twitter. But I want you to imagine, and, and the Supreme Court in, in those cases, in the twin cases, um, uh, decided in the uh, Tomney case against Twitter, uh, resoundingly in favor of the platforms in a 9-0 decision. Uh, so 9-0, let me just repeat this again. So in that case, what they said was there was no uh, the actual question of material support, the actual question of aiding and abetting the terrorism wasn't a close question. These companies had never done anything that was that could constitute that reached the level of aiding and abetting. Why? Because, and this is Justice Thomas writing for the court, essentially what the court said, the plaintiff's argument was, if any terrorism occurs across the world, and this was Islamic terrorism, okay, uh, terrorism by uh, Islamic groups, Google, Facebook, and Twitter were responsible for that, okay? The plaintiff's theory in the case was so broad that it would encompass every act of Islamic terror, and you'd always be able to turn to Google, Facebook, and Twitter to have to force them to pay for that terror. Um, And the court said that that wasn't a reasonable uh, approach to liability in the cases. Now, let's turn the... uh, let's. Imagine if the court had decided the other way, okay? What would Google, Facebook, and Twitter have done? Well, what is what does it mean to incite terrorism? What does it mean to uh, host content that essentially causes someone somewhere down the line to turn to terrorism? Okay, which is a horrible, horrible thing. You know, let's stipulate that terrorism is horrific and, and unjustified across the world. But what the, well, with showing videos of the horrors that are occurring in Gaza today uh, be that incitement to terrorism? Would that be the, the thing that galvanizes someone to take up? arms in an awful way and target innocent civilians in these horrendous acts. Um, Well, perhaps, uh, perhaps what what it would mean is that any writing, say in Arabic, um, uh, on these platforms that was critical of U.S. involvement in the Middle East would now be the basis for a liability, you know, years down the line. Um, and so the, the, these enormous platforms would now have a huge incentive to remove this kind of material. Any material that becomes potentially risky, um, that exposes them to liability, um, would be 
would would not be worth. Remember that model I described at the beginning, which is this kind of uh, free model. The 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 cost, the marginal cost of that, the risk that's attached to it, would not be worth the, any benefit of that additional eyeball uh, generated from advertising. Um, and so, uh, what you would see is a mass suppression, especially of controversial speech, especially of speech that criticized governments, that criticized these acts, that exposed horrors, uh, you know, uh, that are going on in society. And so that should tell us that it's not, if we change the liability rules and we say, oh, it's only for the largest platforms, that change might have the greatest negative impact on our actual freedom to express ourselves online. Uh, and so I want to su- suggest, and it's not just Islamic terror, this, the theory of the case was essentially that, you know, my general view is that every wrong that occurs today has some online component to it. Um, Someone's Googled something, someone's learned something, someone's gone down an internet rabbit hole um, before they undertook their despicable act. Now, does that make the whole internet and every everyone online essentially liable for all the bad things that human beings do? I think we want to be very cautious about moving to a world where liability is so significant that internet companies want now to suppress speech as much as possible instead of empowering us they become the world's biggest censors. Um, and I think that is a, that is exactly the Supreme Court, when it took on these cases, did not know that it was going to conclude this, that they were going, it was going to basically declare one moot. Um, and the second one decide nine zero. Okay. Um, but when it gave enormous kind of benefiting from enormous set of briefs in that case and with a year of reflection on this issue uh, the nine justices decided we didn't want to mess up this uh, critical balance of how speech occurs online in the United States even involving the very largest platforms which is exactly so I'm returning now to (laughs) your your precise question Um, uh, in 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 you know involving Google, Facebook, and Twitter. In one of the cases that was a run up to Gonzalez, in a case in the Second Circuit called Force v. Facebook, twenty thousand persons in Israel who were living in fear of terrorism essentially blamed Facebook for the terrorism they faced. Okay, um, and many people have said that Facebook has actually suppressed a lot of Palestinian voices inappropriately. Uh, and Facebook and its services, Meta and its services, um, in, in, at that time the the company was also called Facebook. That's why it's forced to be Facebook. Um, and so, but a change, the opposite ruling in Gonzalez would have revived those force v. Facebook-style cases, um, which would make the, essentially, internet a giant censorship machine. Yeah, I completely agree. I think the whole point of free speech is to have free access to difficult and controversial speech. And if you incentivize regulation or uh, if you create norms or laws that actually disincentivize that kind of content from being published online, then I think uh, it's a problem. So, yeah, I think completely agree with you on on that. Um, I wanted to also touch upon this issue that you bring out very nicely in your paper, and we'll link the paper to the page on the podcast, uh, which is about the, the fact that because Section 230 exists, uh, a lot of these online platforms are able to create community guidelines and essentially self-regulate their platforms. Uh, and when we talk about changing Section 230, 
or Section 79 of the IT Act in India or some other kind of change, uh, which either restricts or completely removes the li- uh, exemption from liability. We are essentially talking about whether community guidelines or self-regulation is better or whether some form of either state coercion or state regulation is better. So it's it's basically a question of trading off one form of regulation versus the other. And when you opened up this discussion, you talked about the whole uh, fact that both President Biden and President Trump were actually advocating for some form of regulation, but for opposite reasons. And so there is a, I mean, theoretically and normatively, there is a trade-off and there are a set of advantages and disadvantages when we talk about community regulation or self-regulation. In this case, you could argue that it's basically corporate regulation, but influenced by user expectations, shareholder expectations, and so on. And at the on the other side of the spectrum, you have state regulation, and that can be either light touch or intrusive or heavy-handed, right? So can you can you juxtapose these two and talk a little bit about how they stand up to each other? Yeah. So I think this is a central question that's occurring in dialogues across the world. Um, has the move towards self-regulation or community guidelines and the interpretation by the platforms of those community guidelines gone too far? And should we instead move back towards a more government-censored system of content moderation? Um, You know, so the word content moderation is not is a a phrase that's new to the vernacular. Um, It's uh, uh, it was created because the companies had to create internal teams to figure out what stayed up, what went down what got monetized, what got promoted. Uh, They had to uh, set up rules because they found themselves in these very difficult pickles again and again. And so uh, they created a kind of, um, and so YouTube had to figure this out very early on. Um, And so uh, you had people within uh, um, Google, that lawyers, essentially, uh, Nicole Wong, for example, um, one of the uh, early pioneers in this, creating uh, uh, kind of what became to be what what came to be known as trust and safety teams within these companies, um, and the and many people have said these teams have been ineffective; they have not done a good enough job and that, and especially, you know, many people have said they haven't done a great job across the world, even if they are better in the United States or in English, maybe they aren't very good uh, operating elsewhere because of the resources and uh, a limited cultural knowledge that they might have, or even linguistic knowledge that they might have. Uh, so all of that, I think, is fair very fair criticism. And you've had Meta certainly repeatedly acknowledge its failures in this regard. Uh, that said, um, the, the move towards government um, content moderation um, immediately sounds like a censorship scheme. Right. So content moderation is uh, a different name for if the government, if uh, a process that if government were doing it would be considered censorship regimes. Uh, And I described this, the Internet, uh, uh, turning to censorship if we impose liability on, uh, you know, you know, significant liabilities on Internet platforms for the speech they carry has indeed censorship. So I think we have to be very careful because what I, and so let me come back to Donald Trump. Donald Trump had a you know great knack for labeling things fake news. And, but when Donald Trump labeled something fake news, it was almost always true. 
Uh, and so, uh, but you had the president of the United States declaring fake what many of us in the world believed was true. Um, and what I wouldn't want is for an appointee of Donald Trump to make a decision on what is fake and what is real. Um, and I wouldn't want an appointee of, of Joe Biden either. I'm not trying to pick sides here. Um, I do have a sense of who has a closer grasp of the truth. Don't get me wrong, but, but I still wouldn't trust, um, you know, a, a politician I voted for to have that kind of power. Uh, because I, I think that's an extraordinary power. Uh, and so I think we have to be very cautious. That said, I do think that platforms sometimes would be glad to have assistance in their own content moderation uh, thinking of what is um, legal or illegal. Uh, and it can be sometimes very hard to discern. Um, we have judicial processes for defamation that are often very complicated and very long. Okay. Um, and so um, you're asking these platforms to make these decisions, uh, in a, you know, uh, uh, to identify manifestly illegal material, et cetera. And so maybe that's, that's fine uh, uh, very quickly. Um, but these are difficult questions, and I want to make sure that we uh, that the speech laws are clear, that there's a kind of uh, judicial avenue that's available to vet, you know, to give the people a chance to uh, to say no, what I'm saying is actually legal, um, and even if the you know, particular authority doesn't like it, uh, I actually think that what I'm saying is within the law. Um, and so I think these are important questions. What we want to be careful of is that our horror at the current landscape, especially in the wake of, you know, some terrible event, you know, which of which there are, you know, always too many, uh, doesn't lead us to then say, well, uh, you know, now I want to put my faith in uh, another, uh, you know, power um, where that could also be abused. So the question is, what do you think is more likely to be abused, um, et cetera? Uh, and what do you think has enough checks out there uh, that are important? Elon Musk, uh, basically, when he took over Twitter, or now X, he wanted to really... Uh, Open the floodgates of speech. He thought there was too much censorship on his platform. But he got pushback of all things from his advertisers, from companies that basically said, Hey, you know, we don't really love platforms that promote hate speech, um, even if that is legal in the United States. Okay. So he found himself having to deal with, uh, advertisers that were leaving his platform because of his, uh, re-platforming, uh, these kinds of individuals, uh, gutting the value of, of, of Twitter, uh, because its revenues were, were, you know, decimated by that process. So, there is a check in the marketplace. I know that uh, many would prefer a much more direct check in, in through more democratic means. And I understand that. And I just want to make sure that if we do move, ha have that kind of system, that there, if the independent of politics um, have uh, kind of judicial avenues, um, and so really be insulated from the political system as much as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, while you were talking, I was thinking of the additional advantage or one of the advantages of uh, self-regulation, at least to some extent, is that uh, at least in the digital sphere, the switching costs to another platform are far lower than, say, in the offline space. And you see it all the time, right? I mean, there is a different demographic group on different platforms, people are people do switch or make a transition 
over a period of time if they find another platform that's thriving compared to the one they are on. Some platforms age age out of relevance or significance. Some platforms and so on and so forth. Self-regulation does allow for that kind of a marketplace to function and thrive and for users to move, which is, I mean, you don't really have that option if you if you invest wholeheartedly in state regulation. So, yeah, so this kind of, uh, the options do exist. There are switching costs, of course. I have enormous kind of network on, on Twitter that I don't have on threads and Mastodon and Blue Sky, all platforms, uh, 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 where I uh, actually also, uh, you know, engage. Uh, I found the best platform. So two other alternative platforms that I find the most engagement are turned out to be LinkedIn, which I now use much more because of Elon Musk. Um, and so uh, that's a Microsoft platform. So again, a massive enterprise, um, you know, another, you know, I don't know how many trillion dollars Satya Nadella has now um, brought up uh, Microsoft's uh, market cap too. Uh, But uh, uh, it's, uh, it's, I I agree with you that there's, uh, there's, uh, you know, options and governments, you know, when you live in one country, the government has one view. uh, And so you want to be cautious that the government isn't able to impose that view on everyone. And so there's, um, this is uh, uh, a challenge that is a real challenge. It's a challenge for democracy across the world. Uh, And um, I don't know if we have it right currently. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we should, we have to be very thoughtful about the alternatives um, and make sure that we're, we're not introducing new problems as we change the laws. Yeah. Speaking of which, let's let's go to the uh, Digital Services Act that you've also written about, and you've written a very interesting argument on the scope of the some of the provisions or parts of the law to be misused in countries if they are exported uh, as they currently exist. So why don't you? Uh, Tell us about what this law is doing and purporting to do. And uh, then we can talk a little bit more about uh, its potential impact across different jurisdictions. Well, the Digital Services Act is this enormous um, uh, reform of how um, online internet services, communication services um, work So, first of all, there's a kind of misnomer in the title. It's not digital services generally. It's not all services that are provided digitally. Okay. So, if you are providing uh, accounting services online, you aren't subject to the Digital Services Act. So, uh, there's a kind of oddity of the title, which... uh, I, I don't know. Other, other, I haven't seen other people criticized, but I've written about digital services for decades now, literally. Um, and the interpretation of digital services here is very narrow. It really is referring to these kind of online platforms uh, for speech. Um, so digital speech service providers, information service providers. Um, uh, and uh, it's referring to the platforms, not to uh, individuals, et cetera, that are providing these services online. Uh, so, so the uh, it's an, it's an effort to bring this uh, these large platforms under some kind of democratic control. Uh, one of the key features of it is the emphasis is that each of the 27 member states creates a digital service coordinator. Okay. Um, And that coordinator now uh, helps determine processes of transparency um, within the uh, actions of the platforms. And so you have trusted uh, 
uh, researchers who are allowed access. You have obligations for these platforms to provide extensive reports, including reports of every individual decision that they're making on uh, on removing content. Uh, there's a lot of concern here, uh, and this is a uh, this is a Trump. This is the concern that Trump had of too much removal of speech and not enough rights given to those whose speech is being censored. Okay, so this is a in that sense a pro speech uh, uh, approach, and so want to make sure that that process of removing people is uh, is being uh, sufficiently safeguarded. But at the same time, there is an effort to say, hey, you've got to take down uh, manifestly illegal speech faster. Okay. Uh, and then also introducing this notion of trusted flaggers that are outside entities, third parties that are recognized as being particularly expert in determining when something is illegal and communicating that to the platforms and the platforms having uh, to treat that expeditiously and uh, not necessarily to say to rubber stamp it, but to say that they will, uh, you know, have particular uh, 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 expedited procedures to consider, to seriously consider those trusted flaggers approach to the question of whether or not a particular uh, piece of content should be removed or not. And those trusted flaggers are there to largely to flag something to go down, uh, not to flag it as legal. It's, that would be a, a, a kind of painful process to, to identify all the legal stuff online would be a, a waste of time, really. Um, so, so it's an enormous uh, apparatus. Um, and I think the European Union created this system and is still trying to work out what does transparency really look like? What, and so there's, there's a kind of, there's efforts to have the companies do, uh, reports of systematic risks that their platforms raise, um, and a variety, and a host of other things that are, that are critical to the, uh, this process. So it's, it's really a very broad, uh, kind of, uh, refor uh, reforming, uh, the processes of these companies. Um, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a very significant effort and there's much to credit in that approach. Uh, though we can talk about some of the concerns that I have as well. Yeah, it's a very different model of trying to regulate the kind of problems you were talking about. And in one sense, very different from the from the option of restricting or doing away with the Section 230 uh, kind of exemption given to online intermediaries and platforms. Uh, but the argument that you tease out in the paper is basically that if these same provisions could be exported to other countries that maybe have fewer checks and balances or uh, maybe more authoritarian, less democratic, uh, where the rule of law doesn't work as well as many of these European countries. Uh, you could see some of these provisions being used in a completely different manner. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So one of the concerns I have is that um, that digital service coordinator role that I just described Sounds very technical, uh, but if you the the title digital service coordinator, it seems a ministerial role. I'm just coordinating things, but the powers actually are quite vast. The power to choose the flaggers who are trusted, the powers to designate the researchers who can have access and therefore the researchers who can't have access. Uh, the power to select the dispute settlement bodies and accredit them. Those are all very significant powers. Um, and they're, of course, 
can be used in political ways. And I think that should be something that we recognize and we we should understand how politicians politicize everything. And politicians see everything through the lens of the next election. What keeps me in power? What keeps my party in power? Um, and that is a natural proclivity of, of politicians on the left and the right. It is universal um, kind of um, uh, uh, a kind of self-preservation instinct of politicians. Um, and this might mean the use of these kinds of provisions, these kinds of measures to preserve themselves, uh, protect themselves online, okay? To preserve that party's worldview, to promote and, and distribute that party's worldview online. And to demote the, the opposition's worldview. Uh, those are things that any political party, and so I don't care whether it's left or right who's in power, uh, what, you know, whatever the, the government that's in power. And as we've seen in every country, uh, you know, you've had, you can have shifts of power in a democracy at least you can have shifts of power like you know where the pendulum swings and suddenly you thought you were going to be the one choosing those those uh, uh digital service coordinators now it's the other guys for choosing the digital service coordinators and hey look this digital service coordinator doesn't see the world the same way uh you see the world uh, so it's not just the digital service coordinators there are lots of other mechanisms uh, uh, within the DSA that can be politicized. Imagine su something such as si systematic risk uh, undertakings and um, uh, and even crisis protocols. So the DSA was conceived before the pandemic, but it was the final drafts were written it during the pandemic, um, and they realized they needed to actually. Uh, they decided that they needed crisis protocols basically to control speech online in the middle of a crisis. Now, in F for politicians, they, what is a crisis? <laughs> so, um, you know, um, it, these kinds of protocols can themselves be uh, politicized uh, by clever uh, politicians. Um, and so uh, all these, what is the systemic risk? Um, uh, those kinds of questions can again be politicized um, because is the platform doing enough on what you think is the risk to society? Um, and so in all these cases, I think there's a little bit, uh, there's too much faith in government actors as being democratically elected. One of the virtues of American constitutional structure um, is a distrust of the government itself. Okay. Uh, and so a, a recognition that democracy alone isn't enough protection for ordinary people. That the uh, the government itself, even if it's elected on a periodic basis, cannot be trusted during its uh, during the uh, non-election years. Um, and so, I think that is a important thing to keep in mind, and something that I I think it's not that the DSA forgets that, but I don't think it has enough checks and balances in place to kind of ensure fully independent decision-making, to ensure that its procedures can't be hijacked for political purposes. So I just want to keep in mind that we have to be, this is what I'm asking is something quite impossible. We need to keep corporations in check and we need simultaneously to keep governments in check. How do we straddle that? And I think 
um, those are difficult questions and I don't have uh, the answers to all of this uh, at all. Uh, but I think it's uh, something I want to make sure that we keep front and center as we complain about big tech, which I think we rightly do because they do fail again and again. Um, so I think there's, uh, there are complaints to go around, but I also want to be ca- cautious about the systems that we're uh, creating that will be the next, uh, that will create possibly the next set of problems. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, one of the problems is that we sometimes, like you said, we don't think enough about the government as a political entity or as something that serves political masters. And in democratic systems and in other systems, you do have political masters who think politically and who want to retain power. And when you give them some power to, again, act as gatekeepers of speech, it's a problem and you have to be careful about what kind of powers you give them. And uh, also I think what you were talking about this uh, crisis protocol, and I was just thinking back to COVID and I think one of the things that critics of uh, government responses in many cases said that uh, what they were essentially saying was that there was very quick consensus on a certain set of measures or approaches that need to be needed to be taken. And anybody who disagreed with it was sort of, you know, either not heard or ostracized in some extreme cases. And in times of radical uncertainty, you actually need a lot of dissenting voices to come in and give you alternatives, no matter whether they're right or wrong, but you do need that, that option to at least hear people when you're not very clear whether the approach you are taking is definitely going to be the right one. So I think uh, in some sense, in crisis, you actually need more speech than less speech. And not to make an argument for anarchy, but <laughs> but you do need uh, at least different viewpoints to come in. Look, I, I took the vaccines at the first moment they became available. I've taken every round of vaccine that humanly possible. Okay. Um, but I do appreciate that there are people who criticize the vaccines and said, you know, that now most of them I think are cranks and, and idiots. So don't get me wrong. But I can't, I am not a scientist and I can't judge who is the crank and who is the idiot, et cetera. And I do think it was, it's important to be able to criticize even the Centers for Disease Control, even the World Health Organization. Um, I don't think that just because the WHO says something, it cannot be, it should be incontrovertible online. Uh, and so, so I think we want to be very cautious about this. Let me, let me give you an example. Uh, coming out of Europe, coming out of a democratic nation. This last summer in France, um, there were riots following the death of a 17-year-old boy, uh, a, a, a person of color um, in, 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 in France. And um, you had the government blaming the internet blaming Snapchat and TikTok for fomenting the violence. Okay. And kind of with a hints that maybe these platforms should be shuttered. Okay. Not going, not going anywhere near there and there'd be legal protection. So I'm not saying that there were those powers and even the DSA doesn't give anyone the power to shutter uh, a, a platform. There is a temporary uh, closure options under the DSA, but they're temporary and there are some protections built in. But I just want to say that that shows you the kind of political instinct uh, that there, you know, many of us would say, well, the rioting was, was really due to underlying racism in society. Uh, you know, uh, the police brutality against certain communities, uh, and it, if they were, they, if that was being, if there were influencers on TikTok or Snapchat that were 
you know, criticizing the police or the government, um, maybe those people, sometimes maybe, maybe they were wrong. Sometimes, uh, sometimes I'm sure they were totally off base and they were saying something that was false, perhaps. But also, you know, many times they may be saying things that are true about the racism that's going on and maybe even the racism of the police force. Um, that was certainly true in the Black Lives Matter protests in the United States, where we saw again and again, we the history says the police say no. Our police officers responded appropriately when they were threatened, uh, et cetera. Uh, and this killing, you know, was just a tragic, uh, but, uh, uh, but, uh, defensible act. And then we've realized through cell phone cameras and the distribution of the images. No, in fact, the choking of someone, the, uh, the killing of someone was not justified, was, was a terrible abuse of power. Um, and the ability to say those things online has been critical to having society take another look at itself and recognize these terrible ills that we have as an American society. Um, and the propensity of politicians here, a democratic nation such as France, to blame the Internet platforms for the rioting that occurred for this, for the kind of long held grievance within certain, uh, com- immigrant communities and people of color within those, uh, you know, saying, no, these are, these are long standing problems in society. Uh, I'm not a- approving rioting. Don't get me wrong, but, you know, protests, et cetera, that might, might arise. Um, I think it's important to under, so just shows you the way that every politician has a, kind of immediate uh, impulse to blame someone else. And here, the internet platforms become the kind of faceless problems that they're the ones who are promoting this terrible idea. Uh, And we should hold them responsible for these things. In the United States, there's been a lot of criticism uh, of, uh, of the internet platforms again, especially TikTok, of showing images that are pro-Palestinian in the Israel-Gaza uh, uh, war that's, that's occurring. And um, the question is, is that what TikTok is doing, or is that because TikTok users are really up in arms about what's going on in, uh, in, in Gaza? Uh, and so... Uh, you know, after the horrific um, massacre of October 7th um, by Hamas. Uh, so so um, this, you know, I think it's uh, it, it's just the level of politics being everywhere uh, should should remind us to be a little bit cautious, uh, to be concerned about the power of Internet platforms, don't get me wrong, but also to be cautious about uh, well, as you use the term, do we want the government to be the gatekeepers here? Um, and be a little bit cautious about that. The DSA doesn't make the government the gatekeeper. So I want to make sure I've made it plain. The DSA doesn't move us to government gatekeeping. It, it's, it's, it identifies these big platforms as uh, gatekeepers and then says it has, they have special responsibilities. But there are powers in the DSA that might still be abused in that in that uh, uh, process that I want to identify. Thank you for that, and uh, Anupam, thanks so much for your time. Uh, this was a great conversation. I had a lot of fun, and it was also great to see you in uh, in our office recently. I hope you had a good trip in to in Delhi and in India. Uh, oh, I had a wonderful trip uh, to uh, Delhi. I was in Mumbai. Um, we got a chance to see the Taj Mahal um, as well, which is every time I visit it, it never fails to impress. Uh, so, and we were lucky because we happened to uh, find an afternoon where the fog and smog wasn't was was lifted during the winter months. You know that can be. Uh, particular challenge and so we got had a great view uh, 
Uh, I will take the, uh, a minute to uh, to say one one small infelicity in my visits uh, to India, which is Wi-Fi access. So, <laughs> Anirudh, if you give me a second. Uh, so, because of uh, as far as I can tell, because of national security concerns, law enforcement concerns. Um, the Indian government would like to know who's using the internet essentially all the time. Um, and so you have to register your mobile with your mobile phone um, when you want to access Wi-Fi in many, many places. Okay. And it, or if you're in a hotel, you're registered through your hotel room number, etc. Okay. Um, and um, and Wi-Fi providers have this kind of know your customer responsibility. Um, this makes it extremely painful to get online um, in in India. Um, and I've just tried. If you, especially if you don't have an Indian phone number, but even if you have an Indian phone number, that process of having to key in your phone number, uh, get the OTP, uh, uh, push it in is, you know, minutes out of our day. Imagine the, you know, across, uh, you know, 1.4 billion people or whatever, the minutes that are taken in just putting in OTP. Uh, you know, and the loss of productivity, just the stealing of our uh, of our thoughts and our time, you know, just kind of unnecessary nuisance. I traveled from India to China, to Hong Kong, where you have immediate access to Wi-Fi. And I thought China was the national security state, the surveillance state. But it's so much easier for me to access the Internet. Now, I know the Internet is censored in mainland China, and even Hong Kong is seeing some of that uh, 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 unnecessary censorship. So I'm not saying that China is better on the Internet than India. That's not what I'm suggesting. But on this tiny little issue of getting at people online, uh, the impossibility for foreigners, because the OTP doesn't often work with foreign numbers at all, I would wait and wait and wait for the, the uh, one-time password. OTP is one-time password for non-Indians. Uh, if you ask the Americans what is OTP, we would have no idea what OTP is, but it's a natural part of India's Indians' daily lives. Okay. Uh, and so the whole process of Wi-Fi is just another example of in, of a country's digital policy and how one goal, which is national security, which is clearly a worthy goal, can sometimes overwhelm other important uh, things like convenience, uh, efficiency, productivity, uh, and lack of annoyance. <laughs> um, and so, and so, you know, it just, uh, I've just, you know, uh, kind of, I've been in India multiple times over the last decade, and I've had the same experience again and again. I I always have cellular access that I purchase from my uh, from my phone company, but that often, you know, that may not work at all times, etc. Uh, and so it becomes, uh, and then having to hotspot over from my phone to my computer, it's it becomes just a nightmare, uh, and I think it's. India is um, has made has decided that national security is. India has made a national security determination that other democratic states, other G twenty G seven states have not, um, and India should ask itself: Is our national security um, risk different in a particular way? Is this producing? particularly important information that we need to uh, preserve. And I, I think a real investigation and reconsideration of, of this uh, is long overdue. Yeah, I understand. I think uh, the frictions with OTP requirements are sometimes quite considerable, especially if if you're not 
a habituated and b uh, you don't reside in india ordinarily and and i hope some of our listeners can actually think about a better solution and a better balance to the kinds of issues you're talking about uh, but anupam thank you so much for your time this was a great conversation and uh, yeah thank you thank you anirudh i'm very very proud of the work that carnegie india is doing uh just super impressive to to visit with your fellows so thank you We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. To make sure you don't miss it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever wherever you get your podcasts from. To learn more about our research and team, you can visit us at CarnegieIndia.org. You can also find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you for listening. See you next time.